If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two with John Adams. Don't forget to listen to our discussion about Dr. Joseph Warren. At the very end, you'll see how Dr. Warren, who was Adams' personal physician, might have played a monumental role in the history of our nation. Here is part two of The Call with John Adams. Let's talk about Mrs. Adams for a moment. It seems that your relationship was quite a bit more significant than husband and wife. It appears to me that she is your your number one confidant. I mean, is how would you describe your relationship? I I would indeed. And and it is it is odd that as a as a young man, and when we first met, when I first met the Smith sisters, I was underwhelmed with them, and I was not so sure about their father, the Reverend. But of course, my first opinion very often can uh, can be wrong. And when we uh, found ourselves together again, I was smitten. And I saw in her much more than just a lady. I saw someone that I could confide in, educated by her father, very well-versed in, in letters and in books. In fact, we would quote poetry to each other, and she could memorize far better than I could. And oh. Skills as well, not only, you know, as a reverend's wife, as a reverend's daughter. Her life, um, somewhat sheltered, we could say. But when we were married in October of 1764, and she moved into the house that we would live in, across from the one I was born, she would manage the household duties better than anyone I could ever imagine, to the point where... She cooked our meals, she sewed, and she'd come from a very protected, sheltered home, and she had as many opinions about everything as I did. I knew <laughs> at once that I had, I had married well, very well, the best I could have. And I will tell you, sir, that in my letters, although I, of course, congressional proceedings had to be kept secret, what I could tell her and what she wrote back was information I could use. She was an eyewitness to the Battle of Bunker Hill, fought on Breed's Hill, obviously, but she was an eyewitness to that. She was an eyewitness to the Siege of Boston, and she was also an eyewitness to the thoughts of the people. She was one of those who wrote to me of independence, of the need for independence, she was very really? strong-minded as the first lady about a war with France. Her opinions were wiser than the men that were in the executive branch. That and is a big statement right there. And the mother of my children as well. And during my many times away in Congress and in Europe, she tended to the farm. In fact, my... My dear friend James Warren reported that the farm had never looked better. And in my mind, I never doubted it. 
that she could do as well as I could, if not better. That's incredible. So when you look, when you speak of Miss Adams, do you see her as a partner or the love of your life? I mean, how, how do you describe her? I would describe her without um, balancing the two. I would describe her as both because one cannot run a farm even though our government and our laws are set up uh, preferential to men in these times, I would describe her as a partner because if I did not think of her as an equal partner, I could not have gone to Congress or Europe and left the farm that long for her to run. But also the one that the good Lord intended for me to be with. It is extraordinary what she's capable to do when you're away. Which Indeed. brings me to the question of women. So in, uh, can women vote? They cannot, sir. Are you, are you uh, trying to hedge me down the road towards Mrs. Adams' thoughts on a future government, sir? <laughs> I certainly would love to hear all of her thoughts. I'd love to have a conversation and hear what is in her head, see how much of what you think she thought was true. But I, I guess what, what I'm actually thinking is, is the when it comes to voting, who should be president, who should be you know, in Congress, getting the wisest people in place to make the wisest decisions, it seems to me like, people like your wife should be in government and for women to be able to vote and hear that side, you know, of, of the population, their opinion. I mean, do you think women should be able to vote? Well, of course, in my times, they cannot. Uh, in these times of 1801, what the future holds, I know not. I can tell you though, opportunities such as that could be in our future because of the government that we have formed, uh, first by declaring our independence and then by drafting and ratifying a constitution with a set of laws, with amendments that can change that constitution. So if there is opportunity in future times beyond this one, that that should take place then there is a government which will allow it to happen. I I can tell you that I think Mrs. Adams would be perfect in any number of government opportunities. Yeah, it does seem like that. That is the best way I can answer it, sir. Seems like she'd have no trouble handing the difficult men as well. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. So you'd you'd mentioned uh, Bunker Hill. When I say the name Dr. Warren, do you know who I'm speaking with or about? Of course. Of course. Yes, I, 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 feel, I feel, sir, that I have let you down by not answering your question. Oh, let me just do. say this. With the laws we have in place through our Constitution, there may be in the future, perhaps in your time, an opportunity for that. How is that for an answer? I think that is a great answer. I do. And... and it is. It's one of the It ends up being one of the extraordinary things about our time, is that when significant changes need to be made, even though it is difficult to make them, they can be made. Yeah. And there isn't a monarch sitting on the throne 
saying, you know, we're just going to, the, the whole world's going to follow one person's decisions. So, it, so yeah. No, I, yeah. I think, I think you answered my question perfectly. Good. So when I, when I was in uh, Boston, it was the first I'd heard of Dr. Warren, who died in Bunker Hill, who I believe was your physician. Dr. Warren sounds like he was an extraordinary man that died before his time. Do you have anything to say about him? Well, just imagine how history would have been different had he lived. Just 34 years old, sir. Now, I, of course, myself and Mrs. Adams, we, we all, we had, there was Dr. Warren, there was also Dr. Young, who attended to our family. Dr. Warren would have, well, he was a great man on the day that he died, but he would have been an even greater man and probably would have risen along with the rest of us in the new government had he lived. His intellect, his fire, his ability to write, his ability to speak, there would have been a place for him. I can only conjecture, because we lost him that tragic day, as I heard from Mrs. Adams at the Battle of Breed's Hill, is that it was his own personality that brought him there. One thing I've always admired about my dear lost friend is that not only was he willing to speak the truth, but he was willing to act the truth. It was not enough for him to give fiery oratory as he did at the South Meeting House during the commemorations of the Boston Massacre, or to write letters for the Committee of Correspondence, or to deal with royal governors. When the time came that there was warfare, that muskets had to be fired, he was there. He did not have to be at that battle, sir. He chose to be there. And because he was to be commissioned a major general, and it had not been made official yet, he fought as a soldier, and that is what got him killed. I have nothing but the utmost respect for Dr. Warren, and it is with the laurels on his brow, how he is remembered. I, I just can only wonder what he would have been had he survived. I think he would have fought in the war as a soldier. I do. I do not think he would have been in Congress. But again, that is only conjecture. And had he survived, he would have been one of the great men of our time. So you, don't think that, you don't think that he would have been possibly been... Uh, even considered a founding father had he survived that battle? Oh, I do. Oh, I, I think do. so, too. Yeah, it, it appears. So, speaking of soldiers, Dr. Warren goes right to the front of the line. He is happy to hold a gun and, and charge right into the flying bullet uh, if that's what the need is. Um, where do you stand on that? I, I mean, you, you never fought as a soldier, uh, from oh. my understanding. Indeed. You have some strong feelings about this, don't you? I do. Because every time I saw um, Colonel Washington and then later General Washington being in Congress, and then later as General of the Army, every time I saw him, I thought, oh, what it is to be a soldier. Oh, to have, to have been a soldier. And being on the board of ward ordinance, I, I read everything I could about soldiering. And, of course, later about 
the Navy as well. Uh, I would have liked to have been a soldier, but I was needed in Congress. And every time I would start to complain about not being a soldier, Mrs. Adams would reel me in and tell me that, that I had duties in the Congress and that I was needed there. The closest I came to combat, sir, was on that first voyage over on the Boston to France. And there was to be a battle between the Boston and a British merchantman, heavily armed for a merchantman. And then once that merchantman saw that we were outgunned, she hauled down her colors and surrendered. And as Captain Tucker was walking about the deck, he noticed that I was standing with the Marines with a musket, fully accoutred, ready for battle. That is the closest I came to being a soldier. Do you think that you were fit to be a soldier? And I know that your desire was there, and had, had somebody told you to, to go to the front lines and that was the best use for you other than your intellect, I believe that you would have done that. But do you think that that was where you needed to be? I think I needed to be in Congress. But if given so the too. opportunity, I would have done what I have always done since I was a child and I found a love of books as I would have studied as best I could to have become a soldier. But that is not what fate asked of me. Fate asked me to be in Congress. And I would like to think that my time in Europe was just as invaluable as if I had held a musket in battle. As we're talking about that, and we're talking about Dr. Warren, had you held a gun, being a person maybe that was, that was not the place where you needed to be, your story could have been just like Dr. Warren's. Indeed. Huge intellect that, that was lost that, you know, I mean, yeah. So, no, I, I, think, I think that turned out the way that it was supposed to, even though I, there's no question in my mind that you would have been willing to fight uh, in that way. If, if you had, had had been asked, for sure. He was president of the of the provincial congress, and he gave all of that up to carry a musket that day. That's what I'm saying. I don't mean to keep harping on Dr. Warren, um, but you throughout your life, there are so many interesting people that you were involved in or involved with, and here this brilliant man who history has more or less forgotten, it appears to me, I mean, this this man was your doctor. I mean, you were involved. Your your hands touched everybody. As, Indeed. As I, uh, as I look at your life, I see it broken down into a couple pieces. And I see the lawyer earlier, the brilliant lawyer. I see the, the pre-presidential politician, the person that was in Congress negotiating to vote on the Declaration of Independence. So there's the lawyer, the, the, the politician. I see the diplomat. I see the vice president and I see the president. Out of those stages of your life, which there may be more, the lawyer, the pre-presidential politician, the diplomat, the vice president, and the president, which of those jobs did you enjoy the most and which one do you think was more important for history, hmm. for the country? Well, the one that I enjoyed the most, of course, was being a lawyer because it was the profession that I decided upon as a very young man after graduating from Harvard and then becoming a teacher in Worcester. I had determined that I would be a lawyer. Can you imagine, sir, if I fulfilled the wishes of my father 
and I had become a minister. The uh, <laughs> politics that I would have been embroiled in and the difficulties I would have had. I was told... Who, would, who, have, who, would, you, who would you have argued with if you had been a minister? Would you have argued with oh. God or would you have argued with the people that were coming to tell you their problems? Oh, the, oh, the, the parishioners and the people of the town if they did not like what I had to say. And, of course... <laughs> With every trade, there is money involved as well and differences of opinion. And I, I suggest that it would have been a very turbulent time for me to have been uh, minister of, of any town. Um, I think so. I was told by friends in college that I had a gift for speaking. I had even thought very briefly, as uh, during my early days in Worcester as a teacher, I... I stayed with a physician, but I thought more and more that if I have this gift of oratory, why not use it? And that was when, while I was teaching at Worcester, I made the decision to uh, read the law with Mr. Putnam. And it was the best second best decision I ever made. The first one, of course, marrying Mrs. Adams despite the fact that uh, Jeremiah Gridley, when he was examining me to pass the bar, had advised me not to marry too young to allow my practice to be established. But I, I did so, but uh, I still managed to marry young enough. But I would say that. I would say my most important... Oh, that is difficult, sir. That is a very good question. To me, it would come down to my days in Congress and the need for independence, um, the need for someone to speak up for independence. I would place that first and a very close second, my time in Europe and gathering the loans from the French and the Dutch governments and securing a peace with Great Britain. I would say those would be the most important. And, of course, one must not forget that I avoided an unnecessary war with France. But without pushing timidity aside in Congress regarding independence, there would be no alliance with France, there would be no constitution, and there would be no country. So I would say that of all that I've done, my most enjoyable was being a lawyer. The most important were those days in Congress of declaring independence. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you you had mentioned something a little bit ago when you were ta when you were talking uh, earlier about the XYZ affair and how you were preparing for war and at the same time trying to negotiate. I think about this time in Congress where you were everyone was negotiating whether there would be a declaration of independence. And all of those negotiations it appeared that once there, there was, it, 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 I may have the timeline wrong here, so correct me if I do, but it appears that what you did during the XYZ affair, where you prepared for war and you negotiated, the exact same thing, you were trying to do the same thing when negotiating the, uh, for independence. Because you are absolutely correct, sir. Tell me about I'll that. Continue. In the first Congress, there was timidity because it was the first meeting for the first time of all of the colonies but Georgia. So the fact that we came to agreements on the fact that we deserve equal rights as English subjects, 
and the fact that we would non-import were, were important decisions to make. But the decisions of the second Congress, of course, because war had begun, were far greater. And you can imagine my frustration, sir, as a man from Massachusetts who had, who had been in Massachusetts when blood was spilled twice on King Street on March 5th, 1770, by the soldiers against an angry mob, and in April of 1775 at Lexington and Concord. And then later, at the Battle of Breed's Hill, in which Dr. Warren was tragically killed. All of this blood has been spilled. Um, yes, at the massacre it was in self-defense by the soldiers, but certainly not at Lexington and Concord, and not at Breed's Hill. Blood had been spilled, and yet I returned to Congress, and my thoughts were these, already in early 1776, the thought that we needed to seek an alliance, meaning France, the thought that the states, and we may call them states now, needed to draft constitutions of self-government, and three, that we, as colonies, becoming states needed to declare independency. And yet when I stepped back into the halls of Congress in May of 1775, it was more moderation. And as I said then, and we'll say now, the middle way is no way. Yet there were men such as John Dickinson and Edward Rutledge who were bringing about roadblocks, uh, ways to not think of independence. They were still talking about petitions to His Majesty, such as the Olive Branch Petition, which was the work of John Dickinson, among others, uh, a petition that I doubt His Majesty even read, and after receiving it, uh, that was when uh, the Great Armada was, was written about that was going to cross the Atlantic with 32,000 British and German troops. And I told them that powder and artillery were the most efficacious ways that we could bring about the way we uh, wanted the outcome to be. And there were times where there were men in Congress that I did not speak with. I, of course, did have a, uh, an error in, in writing a letter to a friend about John Dickinson calling him a piddling genius who <laughs> cast a silly cast on on affairs and it made the newspapers courtesy of the Tories but the point was that war had begun and yet we still have men who are timid who are moderate who say it is too soon and my argument to them was that how could we have men shoulder muskets and go into battle if their own Congress is not brave enough to declare independence why would France become an ally if we cannot even declare ourselves as an independent country or independent states before we think of a constitution and a centralized country? The timidity, as I put it, the middle way is no way. And I said it then, because in order to gain that independence, to, to be the people that we wanted to be, we had to be bold. And that was why I was constantly on my feet in those days of 
1775 and 1776, speaking on such matters, regardless of what others in the room wanted or did not want to hear. I was on my feet constantly in those days, speaking. So I think that when you, when you talk about Dickinson and him, the piddling genius, <laughs> Uh, trying to be in the middle, I suppose that if he had been in Massachusetts where, where people were being killed, I wonder if he would have had a different opinion. He just wasn't as close I, to, the, to the death. Most definitely. And yeah. I, I was an eyewitness. I, of course, defended the soldiers along with Josiah Quincy Jr. at the Boston Massacre trials. And after the Battle of Lexington and Concord, I wrote out myself. I rode out to see for myself. What did you see? To see the burned out houses and the refugees and the dead being gathered up. I went for myself to see. And on my ride home, I knew then there was no turning back. And, of course, um, one must not just tear down. One must build. Because on returning to Congress, that January of 1776, after being home during a break in that Congress, common sense was being read, and read by nearly everyone. And up until that time, our argument had not been with the king. It had been with Parliament. And here was Thomas Paine, as we found out, even though some thought that I wrote common sense, which I did not. Here was Thomas Paine ridiculing the idea of a monarchy. And it was a thought that most people had not considered before. And now it seems so obvious that there was no need for monarchy, uh, to the point where I would write that into the Massachusetts Constitution. And that, of course, a new government, a new opportunity was at hand for us although Mr. Payne expounded on one assembly to govern this new country, which I find to be ridiculous, of course, which is why I wrote Thoughts on Government and eventually would write the Massachusetts Constitution with the three branches of government. But common sense did much to shake people from lethargy and made the moderate stand of Mr. Dickinson and uh, Edward Rutledge and others at that point, silly. You know, I, I can see, there's no question that common sense played a huge role in helping people see what was happening and think differently about the world at that time. But when, from my understanding of what happened when you were negotiating whether or not to vote on independence, the role that you played in that did did you not spearhead that? Are, are you not the, the, the driving force in that? Yes, because we had that committee of five, of course, as you know, composing of myself and Dr. Franklin and Mr. Jefferson to write it and Robert Livingston, who was uh, against independence at that time, and Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Now, it was mostly Dr. Franklin and I who edited what little I did of Mr. Jefferson's document. But when it came time to debate on the floor, Mr. Jefferson did not say a word. And I felt it important with Mr. Dickinson that I must respond. And of course, Mr. Dickinson's 
Phillips on uh, July 1st, when the gavel was sounded by President Hancock that morning, uh, rose to speak one last time against premature independence. Not that he was against it, but it was too soon. And he... More middle way. How this would... With this would end his once brilliant career and how unpopular he'd become. And then he said, in, in closing, that declaring independence now was braving a storm on a skiff made of paper. And, of course, I had to respond. And I'm sure you will not give me the two hours I had that day this morning well, there, there is a little bit of humor in that because I actually spoke for an hour. But right. the new delegates from New Jersey came in and had missed it and wanted to hear it again. So I told them humorously that I was not an actor. I was not performing. And Edward Rutledge, of all people, encouraged me to do so because only I had the facts at hand. And, of course, I've already made some of those points to you. The point being, much as Thomas Paine wrote, that no people had an opportunity like we had, that the great philosophers of antiquity would have longed to live at a time where a people, such as, such as us, could form their own government, a representative government, a republic. And the great philosophers of antiquity would have, would have so much liked to have been in our place and to have a free and independent country. And I, of course, opened by saying I wish I had their gifts, the gifts of the ancient philosophers and orders, so that I may make this argument. And I, I told them that we had this opportunity and we dare not waste it. And, of course, I went through all of the excesses of His Majesty's government and His Majesty, and then the uh, abridging of our rights as English subjects, of the removal of our charters and our means of government, and of imposing standing armies on our shores and waging war on us. And I made all these arguments for the fact that we had the chance to form a republic of the people, representative of the people and we dare not let it go by without doing so you know that argument is so powerful and it is no wonder that things went the direction that they went in that time i want to ask you a question specific specifically about that in that in in, in when you were in congress negotiating and debating whether or not there should be a vote for independence would you say that on your side, primarily, it was you and Dr. Franklin, and there were others, but you would have been the leaders. And on the other side, it would have been Dickinson, Mr. Dickinson, and it was he Pennsylvania, by the way? Is that right? Yeah. No, what was, um, was he Pennsylvania? Well, he had property in Delaware and Pennsylvania, but at that time, he was with a Pennsylvania delegation. Later, represented the Constitutional Convention, he would be of Delaware. We had okay. properties in both. And then also on his side would be the gentleman in New York. Would that be your, your strongest opposition? Is that right? In the beginning, the men from New York were, had to be convinced. But the, the difficulties with the delegates from New York was they could not vote without instructions from their assembly. So they did oh, vote I for see. independence. 
but they had to wait for the approval of their assembly. Well, the reason I bring this up, so then let's just say that Dickinson was your strongest opposition for, for yes. that moment. Your argument was incredibly strong, but my understanding was that Congress was very divided initially, and then it kept coming more and more towards your side as, as the negotiations continued. And what if your places had been switched? Because this is really an argument that you won. It's a debate that you won. Thank God. But what if your places had been switched? What if you had lived in Pennsylvania or, or Delaware where Mr. Dickinson lived and he had lived down the street where the Battle of Bunker Hill or Breed's Hill took place? And what if he had seen what you'd seen and you'd seen what he's seen? You know, maybe here you are peacefully living with your family and your wife and your extraordinary children that grew up to do amazing things. And maybe the thought of them ending up in a battle would have caused you to debate the same debate that Mr. Dickinson was doing had you seen what he saw. Do you think there's a possibility of that? Well, that is a very good question, by the way, sir. That, that is a very good point. One wonders if one had been in a different situation, if you would think differently. And I, I, there, is, there is a case for that. I, I do not know if, if that would have been the case. I would hope that if Mr. Dickinson had been in Massachusetts when all the blood was spilled, that he would have that opinion. But there were still those in Massachusetts who were reluctant as well. I always thought that it was the effect of his wife and his mother being Quakers that made him the way he was. But um, I wonder if yeah, I had been it makes me in Pennsylvania too. and not seen it for myself, if I would have because been so bold in my assertions for independence. By the time we were debating it, I think I would have. I would have been for independence regardless of what state I was from. Mr. Jefferson was in Virginia, which up until that point was untouched, and he was very much for independence. So I well, would like to believe that I would have been for independence regardless of what state then colony before that I would have been in. Um, as for Mr. Dickinson... I would hope that seeing that firsthand would have changed his mind. And I would hope yeah. that it did. But it did not well, work for many in Massachusetts. Is that right? There were many who were still reluctant to go to war in Massachusetts. Even well, I think after that's, I think that's just a matter of human, human nature is that people don't like change, period. Indeed. And I, I think a lot of times, and I, I think that I could see that when people, you know, these people would have been considered British, British citizens or subjects, whichever they saw their whole life. And the thought of, hey, we're going to leave that. We're going to fight the most powerful you know, army in the world would have sounded crazy to a lot of people. There'd be no way to avoid that. Indeed. Yeah. Did you you as I was asking you earlier about how you were planning for war and trying to work both sides of the of that situation? You nominated George Washington at the time, who would not have been president or general. He would have been a colonel. You nominated him to become general and manage and be in control of the armies in the continent, in the Congress. Is that correct? Oh, do you mean back during uh, 
when he was made commander-in-chief of the yes. Continental Army. Uh, of course, Continental, the term Continental Army was his term that he used, but yes, I did, because in looking about uh, the colonies at that time, who had more experience than Colonel Washington? No one. He had fought in that last war against the French and fought very bravely, although, of course, he had been one of those who had helped start it in, in the colonies. But, but after that, he had fought very bravely under General Braddock on the Monongahela. And he was the, he was the man that commanded respect in that room, and he had the most experience of military affairs of anyone there, and I would argue throughout the colonies. And it was, he was a Virginian, and we felt that a Virginian needed to command the army because remember when Lexington and Concord happened on that terrible day of April 19th, although, of course, my second cousin Samuel Adams uh, said that it was a good day because it had finally begun, but during that day of, of tragedy, of bloodshed, and then when the siege had begun, it was first a Massachusetts army on the 19th of April. And then as the siege was begun and continued before General Washington took command, it was a New England army. And the warning at oh. that first Congress before that happened was that the rest of the delegates in the rest of the colonies were afraid of the men from Massachusetts. We were warned upon approaching Philadelphia by by Thomas Mifflin and um, Dr. Rush that that the rest of the delegates from the other colonies were very concerned about the men from Massachusetts, thought we were dangerous, leading them toward war. So when the time came in 1775 to find a commander-in-chief of that, what would be the Continental Army, it was very important to me and to uh, we in New England, uh, second cousin Samuel Adams, of course, as well, that someone other than a man from Massachusetts must command this army. And who better than a man with the presence and, and just the fact that he was known everywhere as a hero as George Washington, Colonel Washington, as commander-in-chief of this army, thus bringing in Virginia. And the Virginians, of course, had been right there with Massachusetts and maybe even before Massachusetts as far as the movement for equality before muskets were fired at all. So a Virginian had to be at the head of this business just as a Virginian had to write the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing that you and George Washington were not tied together at the hip like your entire lives because it does appear that there was no way to get away from one another. I mean, you nominate him as the person to be in charge of the army. He goes on and does the impossible. He ends up then being president. You end up being his vice president. Then, after you become president, you call him back into service. I mean, it seems like you two could never get away from each other. Indeed. And, yeah, that's super. That's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about slavery. You were one of, of the, my understanding is, is of the first 12 presidents. And I probably shouldn't have said that because I don't know how many there's been as of your time, but of the first 12, 
I think you were the only one that didn't own slaves. And I guess my question is, I'd like to hear your feelings on that because I think that you found that abhorrent, but at the same time, when it came time for the need to write the Declaration, you did you want that not in the Declaration of Independence because it was too complex? I mean, it seems like you're on both sides of that fence. Can you clear that up for me? I can. Let, let me first say that I find slavery to be a, an abomination. In fact, Mrs. Adams and I have discussed this on numerous occasions. And she wrote a letter to me once, not that, you know, these are private letters, but I feel for posterity is important, that Mrs. Adams wrote a letter to me asking how we could, as a people and as a Congress, declare our independence as free men seeking liberty and justice and the rights of to be free when we hold others in bondage. And, and I must tell you that I, I could not argue with that sentiment. In fact, I agree with it wholeheartedly. The difficulty is, of course, that in order to have a commander-in-chief from Virginia and members of Congress from outside of New England vote for independence, and the middle colonies, I suppose, as well, as much as I, I wish it not, we had to remove that passage to the Declaration, or there's a very likelihood that we would have lost the southern states in this war for independence on previous occasions because Mr. Dickinson and his faction felt we were too belligerent. They, were, they had already threatened to go their own way in regards to seeking peace with Great Britain. So I had no doubt that many in the middle colonies and the southern colonies, if we pressed the issue of slavery, would have abandoned us. Of course, the passage that Mr. Jefferson wrote in the Declaration blamed King George for the slave trade, which, when you think about it on its face, is rather silly, because King George III had only been king since about 1760, and slavery had been in these shores far longer than that. It, it is a disagreeable thing. And as I stated earlier, I believe that the documents in place, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, can rectify any shortcomings, if you will, from my time as documents under the law and not by men. I believe that these situations can be finalized so that all men all people are created equal, but of course that will be after my time. The difficulty is, as much as I abhor slavery, that compromise was necessary, and that is slavery, a, nece a necessary evil for the time so that we could fight our war of independence and form a government along with the southern colonies. Elsewise, we would be city-states, much like ancient Greece. But make no mistake about it, sir. I am against slavery. It is abomination. And it is something that future generations of this country will have to grapple with. And hopefully not 
way into your time. I think your decision ended up being the right one because th there's no way you guys could have come to an agreement at that time had slavery been left, had, had been addressed. It, it just would have been too much. And uh, as terrible as, as it was, there, there probably would be no nation if you guys had been fighting about that too. I, I fear for the future if we do not remedy this, this difficulty, however. Well, I think, I think somehow things will work out. There's a name that you just said a moment ago, and I can't believe that we're, approach, we're approaching the end of the time that I think we're going to have. And somehow almost an hour and 45 minutes into our conversation, it took that long for the name Sam Adams to come up. Your cousin. Ah, he, indeed. <laughs> I don't know how his name hasn't come up yet. Your cousin, Sam Adams, I'm a little confused because it seemed like he agreed with you a lot of times, but was loud and obnoxious and bold and thinking probably you should move faster than you should, but at the same time understood that you were the guy for the job. But what is the, am I anywhere near what that relationship looked like? Um, ours is an interesting relationship as, as kid because in the early days before the war, and, and it is interesting how, and I think you can agree, how we change through life. In the early days of the protest before the war, I was seen as a moderate, along with John Hancock, because I did not approve of the, the violence in the streets during the days of the Stamp Act protests and the, the Townsend Acts and the... Boston Massacre and all of that, I had already been writing against the infringements on our liberty. I wrote, during the Stamp Act protest, I wrote a dissertation on the canon and the feudal law, which was comparing our treatment to the treatment of the people during medieval times by lords and by the Church of Rome. And it was Samuel who was the one, though not openly, who was supportive of these protests. And we had many disagreement. And he felt that I was too moderate and that I needed to be more in tune with the thoughts of the people. And I, I felt that protests such as the Stamp Act protests uh, did nothing but harm our cause. And yet, as we moved on to Congress our roles reversed. And not that he was not for independence, but it was my name that was called upon more than his, as opposed to in the early days, when my cousin Samuel seemed to be the one that the authorities knew the most. Whereas in Congress, I did most of the talking. And of course, I was the one that was getting up day after day, talking about the blood had, that had been spilled in Massachusetts, and talking about the, the need for expediency towards independence and on the board of war and ordinance and building a navy and, and all of that. And Samuel was the one who was quieter in Congress, except for the one great thing he did at the first Congress, which if you would like to hear a little story. Yes, please. Well, we were about to adjourn in October of 1774 and there was a Philadelphia lawyer 
named Joseph Galloway, who would end up being a Tory and actually joining British forces during the war. But in those days, he was seen as a moderate at that first Congress. And, of course, after deciding where we would meet at that first Congress, Carpenter's Hall, how we would vote, one vote per colony, uh, without Georgia, of course, we started to get down to the debate of what action we should take. And eventually, we came to two resolutions, that our rights as Englishmen were being infringed upon, and two, we passed a non-importation agreement, which Mr. Galloway was against. He feared it would throw men out of work. And he suggested, if you can imagine this, a board of trade which, whose statutes would be approved by Parliament and whose leader would be appointed by His Majesty, which actually was seriously discussed to the point where it was going to be voted on. And it was written in the minutes, and it was voted on, it was seconded, and it was going to be voted on the next day. Well, would you, wouldn't you know it, but Samuel Adams, upon hearing this, went out and mingled among Mr. Galloway's own constituency and told them what Mr. Galloway was going to do, and they were enraged. They were so enraged, they must have let him know that they were enraged, to the point where not only did this board never occur, but the minutes were wiped clean altogether and there was no vote upon it so though wow. my second cousin is not the one to climb to the pulpit and give a great speech or stand in congress and speak for two hours as i did he was in those days a man of action in his own way by making things happen but not being the one giving the great and lofty speech what about uh, John Hancock? What, what, what kind? You described him as a moderate a second a second ago, and I, I I'm surprised to hear that. Was John Hancock considered a moderate in the days before the war? Yes. It was. We were, there was grave concern about the both of us that, as Samuel Adams and and Dr. Warren and others were planning what would be considered at the time radical steps towards protest, that they were concerned that John Hancock was in, in the pocket of the governor and that I was too much of a legal scholar to become openly involved in matters. And, of course, we would all end up being on the same side in those early days of the 1760s and going on closer and closer towards war. John Hancock, uh, a fine governor, uh, he was a fine president of the Congress of Philadelphia, and he would be one who would eventually see that it was necessary for us to part with Great Britain as well. Uh, the, my one anecdote about Mr. Hancock, of course, is on, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, the uh, my motion of George Washington as commander of the army in Cambridge, seconded by, by Samuel, that the mortification on John Hancock's face, because he had anticipated, because he'd commanded the, the 
Boston cadets that he would be commander-in-chief of the Army. And, of course, with, with the lack of experience and merely marching a few men about town is not the same as a man who has actually had a musket ball fly by his head, as mm-hmm. Colonel Washington had done during the war against the French. I, I would say that uh, then-President Hancock did a fine job in moving the debate forward to the eventual vote for independence. I've often thought, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to find a way to have a conversation with Mr. Mr. Hancock in the same way that we're speaking now, and it's, it's not the easiest thing to do, but I've often wondered, and i just like a quick answer of how you feel about this, if he was not one of the bravest in your group, because all of you put your lives on the line, and there, that is the ultimate bravery. But it appeared, from my understanding, that he had built an enormous fortune, and there was no reason for him to risk it all and even build a future because he had already built such an extraordinary present. Was he brave to risk this huge fortune? Do you feel that way at all? Oh, you mean to be commander of the army? Well, or was he not a, one of the wealthiest people? I give him great credit for that. You make a very good point. When you think about it, and I, I believe this is what the royal governors, such as uh, Francis Bernard and Thomas Hutchinson, were hoping for. I, I think they were hoping that he would not want to dirty his hands with the rabble of Boston, that he was above all of that as a merchant, as one of them, and that he would not want to risk his great fortune. The mistake that they made, however, as leading up to the destruction of the tea on Griffin's Wharf was that they, of course, through um, Tory newspapers and, and government, they started to impugn his character. Even before that, uh, 1768, when his ship Liberty was seized, because he was supposedly smuggling wine in and not paying the duties on it. As far back as 1768, they started they to were attack attacking his, his reputation. Yeah. Oh. And I believe, okay. starting with that incident with his ships, the Lydia and the Liberty, with the casks of wine, and then, of course, with the Tea Act, and deliberately making the cost of the East India tea cheaper than the Dutch tea he was supposedly smuggling in, they impugned his character, and in, or at least they thought they were in his mind. And I think all of they did, all they did was push him to the side of to Samuel your side, Adams to and, our side. and the Whigs. They should have courted him instead. They, they did try at times, but when it suited their purposes, they tried to embarrass him as well, calling him an importer when no one was supposed to be importing goods from England. <laughs> Nothing will change a man's mind more than public embarrassment such as that. Yeah, especially in, in I, your time, for sure. And I defended him in court over the uh, affair of the liberty, which eventually went in his favor. So well, I think those events, more than anything, shaped his future political thoughts as war loomed. I, that, that really clears that up for me. Your son, John, is an extremely intelligent person, 
What would you like to see him do in the future with politics? Well, he's already a fine lawyer. Uh, he's already, during my presidency, uh, been appointed to The Hague. He has been to Russia. He's been to Prussia. He's been to France, Great Britain. He's been minister. He has he's accomplished so very much, perhaps he might consider becoming president. Well, he definitely has had the right kind of teaching along the way. You, you've certainly groomed him to take on responsibility. I have two last questions for you, and I just want to thank you for all of this time because, sir, your life is just extraordinary, and I thank you for all of your service and, and the wisdom that you've passed to our generation in your writings, of which you've done just, just so much of it. So two last questions I'd like to ask. The first one is, and, and when I say this, well, I'm just going to say it. There have been, of our time, almost 50 presidents as of the time I'm calling. Oh, gracious. Well, we're going to keep that between you and me. Of those, the scholars look back and rate you at 15 as far as the top. How does that make you feel? Well, I, I would hope that the 14 ahead of me did great things. And I hope that they did great things for the people. I hope that they were keepers of the government. I hope that they kept us out of unnecessary wars, that they successfully fought necessary ones. I hope they resolved the issues of their times. Place such as that matters less to me than, than what I accomplished when I was president. Looking to the future, I would hope that some of the great issues of my time were resolved by the 14 ahead of me, be it party uh, disputes, be it slavery, be it wars, be it a solid economy, men of honor in important positions, respecting the Constitution as written, making amendments to it when necessary. I can only hope that those 14 men were very gifted and have done great things for this country and, and for the people, most important of all. I hope they're about education as well. I'm the only one who has written in the Massachusetts Constitution the need for education, and I hope that those presidents have seen the importance of education of all of the people of our republic. What could be more important to a stable government than an educated people? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that for you to be considered by historians to be at that rank has always been extraordinary to me because I don't, I can't think of a more difficult job than being president after Washington. That, Indeed. It's just impossible. Okay, my last question. One of our recent presidents when he left office, did not, and this has not very, happened very many times in history, he didn't go to the inauguration of the new incoming president. And I understand no, I you, made that, you made that choice as well uh, when, uh, when Jefferson was elected, that you did not go to his inauguration. Is that correct? It is correct. Do you regret that? Um, yeah, uh, well, do I regret it now? I, I would say, well, it is still very new, this being 1801. Right. 
I may regret it later in life, depending on whether. Why didn't you uh, go? As, as we discussed earlier in my time in in our talk, that maybe Mr. Jefferson and I would reconcile. Maybe if that time comes, I will indeed regret it. As of right now, I do not. I was very bitter about the partisan politics of Mr. Jefferson and the Republicans and the high Federalists led by Mr. Hamilton and my own party who wrote a tract, a pamphlet against my being the Federalist candidate for president. Now, all of that being said, all of that bitterness, there is no precedent for a defeated incumbent president attending the inauguration of the incoming president. And by the way, I had to catch the four o'clock stage to make it to Baltimore that day. And Mrs. Adams had already left the new president's house. So do I if you regret it as of right now in 1801? I do not. Perhaps as an older man reminiscing, perhaps with Mr. Jefferson, perhaps I will. Well, whether you do or you don't, without your life, our world and my world now would have been a very, very different place and, and a much worse place. And I, I just thank you so much for, for your contribution and all of the good that you have done because it is immeasurable. And I thank you again for your time today. President Adams, thank you. And there you have it, the intellectual and the unrelenting John Adams. Prior to the call, I'd asked you to pay special attention to the story of Dr. Joseph Warren, who you now know decided to fight as a soldier at Bunker Hill, which actually took place at what they call Breed's Hill. Dr. Warren was also an intellectual, like Adams. He gave powerful speeches, was a prolific writer, a fearless leader, and a fervent supporter of independence. He gave all that up, as well as his life, to carry a musket and fight in the trenches with the other soldiers. Adams never did pick up a gun this way. Those around him knew that the world needed the Washingtons and the Lafayettes, the brave soldiers willing to charge into musket fire, but they also needed the intellectuals like the Jeffersons and the Adams to do the thinking and the intelligent work of creating a new government. Dr. Warren was one of those people. One might wonder what would have happened if we had lost one or two more of these great thinkers. Jefferson's life was threatened many times. Adams could have lost his life while sailing back and forth across the sea on diplomatic missions or during the times he rode his horse through the battlefields filled with fallen soldiers and burned down houses. Are there so many with wisdom that we have them to spare or... Had we lost one more of these extraordinary minds, like Dr. Warren, might it had left us without enough mental horsepower to create the greatest power the world has ever known? Fortunately, we'll never know the answer to that question. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, when you subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you're making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.